You're my favourite. You are. You are the best. Who the hell are you? Ultra. Yes, and what do you do? I'm the doctor. And I just snogged Madame de Pompadour. There comes a time, time lord, when every lonely little boy must learn how to dance. Here comes the drums! Oh, here it comes, the sound of drums. Hello and welcome to Pull to Open, a podcast that goes randomly through all of the stories in Doctor Who. My name's Chris Taylor. And I'm Pete Paschal. We're a couple of guys who are journalists by day, podcasters by rest of the day, and have written a lot about Doctor Who. Obviously, watch it feverishly and often. Yes, and uh, like and previously, previously on Pull to Open, we were in the Forest of the Night with Peter Capaldi. Then the randomizer that we rely on to take us through the Pull to Open Codex took us to the Forest of the Dead and its first part, the Silence of the Library. And now we have arrived, uh, amazingly. In uh, a, a an episode and a story that bears a lot of connections, the previous one, uh, it is story number 173 in the Pull to Open Codex, ladies and gentlemen, the girl in the fireplace. Boop, 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 boop. Crowd goes we, wild. We have arrived in the fireplace yeah. very, very early on in our run in season three and episode five of Pull to Open. We're yeah. here. I, I got to say, given the history of our um, pod that you've just gone over, this mm-hmm. seems like the least random randomizer pick that we've ever does. had. It truly does. Sometimes we're stretching to explain why the randomizer brought us here. I will fully admit that. But after last, the last episode in which we talked about Moffat and RTD being the Who Beatles, uh, when they work together, they always just knock it out of the park. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're the John and Paul. And uh, here, here we go to, to one of their earliest collaborations, which was perhaps more of a collaboration than any. Um, So I'm fascinated to get into it. But first, let's talk Mm. about our week on social media. Pete, how have you done? Yeah, it's been a big week on the social. So as Chris just mentioned, one of the episodes we just recently did was In the Forest of the Night. Um, That's been on TikTok all week long. Now, interesting things that have come out of that. So uh, I think there, I was kind of dead on in the beginning of that podcast where I suggested that it might be an eh episode, but that people mm. love to eh on it, you know, which is to say like, <laughs> it's very memorable for being not super great or delivering on what it is. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were some people who liked it and that's, that's fine. Um, you know, we found redeemable things in it, like everything in Dr. Who that you kind of admire ambition of it at least. Um, but there was, uh, I wanted to start a new thing here on Pull to Open, yep. which is to give a shout out to the best TikTok comment we got all week. Oh, and, oh I, I have a contender for this, but but go ahead. I want to hear yours. Yeah, well, mine is when you, uh, we took a little segment where you talked about the people burning the trees and it was the Cobra <laughs> team. And we were talking about how that being kind of a silly Chekhov's gun that they never really pay off. Uh, and why the hell Cobra, which was a good aside, like I, there's been any number of Doctor Who organizations that they've shown why bring this new thing up. And one of the commenters suggested would have been funnier. 
and this is Stranger Danger with a three in the E, would have been funnier if it was Torchwood burning the trees. Yes. <laughs> Which I have to, like, that's that's pretty on the nose, but I would I would have allowed it. That was my favorite. That was my favorite comment too. So we we absolutely agree on that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's one of those few TikTok comments, which I had to tell my wife about. uh, And then we laughed about it as well. So thank you for spreading the joy, TikTok people. Yeah. I'm in my mind. That's, uh, that's part of, I don't know, somewhere between Torchwood seasons, maybe the last two that the the Cobra is just sort of a, a covert, cover for them so and they also did remind us i i haven't lived in the uk for 25 years so sometimes these things slip my mind but cobra is actually a real organization it is sort of the the crisis group that meets in downing street wow it's not a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world you'd think you'd think maybe there was some connection to the cobra and gi joe but no uh, it is uh, an actual organization, and Boris Johnson got in trouble for not attending meetings early on in the COVID crisis. So oh, wow. It kind of came up a lot more <laughs> after in the forest of the night. So right. British people really know what it is now. Because of Boris um, Johnson's little-known fear of snakes. That's why in, he didn't show indeed. up. <laughs> in, in any case, talking of Pull to Open's connection to the real world, I believe that we have some exciting news about what, the, what our show has done for HBO Max. Indeed. So... As I was, uh, well, as we were <laughs> prepping all our social material, shall we say, for the uh, TikToks, um, it didn't escape our notice that mm. In the Forest of the Night had a bit of a misspelling on HBO Max. It actually spelled it night with a K. God, I just, oh, as, as an editor, that made my eye, my eye twitch every time I saw it. Yeah, clearly done. Put input by someone who had not seen the episode. Clearly not a Doctor Who fan. Um, mm. Anyway, I as one does. This is the modern way of doing this. You shout out to the or a service on Twitter, and I, we did. And, and you know, I, I, I'll fair fair to say we were very polite. We just said, "Hey, could we get this corrected? It's it's wrong. It should be night with an N." And I'm given. I gotta give a lot of admiration and shout out to uh, HBO Max's customer service. They replied yeah. right away. We got in a direct message back and forth, and not only did they listen, they fixed it within a, a, a like 24 or 48. I don't know. The, the, very quickly. Like you, you think that would be something that would kick to the bottom of the pile to get to it months later? No, it's fixed yeah. now. Go check it now. I mean, now as I'm recording this, like you're going to hear this in a week. But I'm really impressed with yeah. uh, the speedy response there. Way to go, HBO Max. Yeah, thank you, HBO Max. I definitely want to give plaudits to the streaming services where they're warranted. HBO Max, I, I, I sort of ambivalent about as a home for for all of New Doctor Who, which it is. It's the only right. place you can watch it unless you're buying the individual episodes. Um, and it is sort of a little bit difficult to do what we're doing and sort of randomly dipping out of episodes, right? I find that I have to search for it all over again. Mm-hmm. Right, search for Doctor because I can yeah. go play next episode of what I was last watching, but that's not going to take me to the menu where I can get to the episode that I need to get. So, uh, HBO Max, just just an idea. Thanks for listening to us on Forest of the Night, but just an idea. Maybe put Doctor Who as sort of a a thing you can easily access from the homepage because mm. there are a lot of us here. A lot of us are going straight there. We're Who fans. We want to dip into any part of the Doctor's timeline. Uh, as if we were Clara splintering ourselves through time. So please make that more accessible. Well, I would also think after, since it's so recent, it, it was so recently new that the season just finished a, a month or two ago and we just had the New Year special. There's This is sort of the period where people want to catch up. Yeah. You know, so having it front and center is, is probably a good idea, a good way to <laughs> capture new viewers. 
And like, yeah, exactly. That, that that's the way Doctor Who spreads. So it's that by... might not be an HBO Max thing. That might be mm-hmm. a thing to a note for BBC Worldwide or BBC. I forget what they're mm-hmm. calling it now, but it is. Uh, there's some marketing dollars here that are probably good to be spent. Um, yes, and while we're talking marketing page. dollars, we we are still looking for sponsors. Just just uh, <laughs> just saying. Yep, we're here too. <laughs> okay, so a uh, little pat on the back to ourselves there, and you're welcome, Doctor Who fans. Yeah. Um, and we also, but, have, speaking of fans, we have a super fan on Twitter who indeed, we'd like yeah. to give a shout out to. Pete, who's the super fan? Super fan is Patrick Perrin. Patrick, who is probably our most faithful listener, um, always gives us a great shout out on Twitter really soon after we upload the podcast. And uh, he's always been quite positive and has shared with us thoughts uh on on the platform so patrick thank you so much for being a great super fan yeah thank you patrick we're here for you but uh we, we love anyone who loves to dip in and out of who as we do yeah so one more bit of um housekeeping and i hope i pick up some more as i'm doing it because as you can tell i'm kind of stalling for <laughs> Could our it be next something segment. to do with uh, reviews perhaps could have something reviews. to do with reviews well this isn't stalling this is actually business you're right thank you for reminding me one <laughs> is we need some reviews guys we've been asking for the reviews we want some more reviews please give us reviews reviews really help us make the podcast more visible to others um if you're listening to this and well (laughs) if you're not i don't know how you're hearing me (laughs) but um please visit your nearest podcast app the pro the one that you're on perhaps and uh why not give us a a thumbs up and you know just pause the playback for a minute give us some thumbs up emoji and uh, go back to what you were doing but the reviews really really do help yeah you are exempt from this if you're an alien race who's listening to us through radio waves coming out from the earth and it's probably a couple of centuries later and it's too late to leave a review anyway because we will have watched all of doctor who by that point but if you are currently on the planet earth uh this this does apply to you please leave us a single emoji review this is what i'm pushing for just leave us a scarf leave us a hat you know uh lobby the uh emoji code people to make a fares emoji um but yeah just say something give us a shout out we're here awesome and you know we like to think about stars while we review and i see five in front of me all the time Mm. thinking about reviews i don't know about you i always Um, see five stars and the last thing i need to do is just do a quick correction on myself just because it's been nagging at me this is one of those things Mm. that's been nagging at me since we recorded the pod so we did silence the library forest of the dead last time and uh one of the things i pointed out was there was like a point where the doctor points his Sonic screwdriver down effectively turns it into a square gun and squares out the thing behind. Right, and right. He's escaping. Like, uh, he's escaping two of the astronauts who've been taken out. Uh, right, exactly. Archaeologists have been taken over by the Vashnarada. Right, exactly. And so it was weird, and it was out of there and out of, out of place. And obviously, he's never used that ability again. But, but on rewatch, I actually was just sort of, as I was sort of, you know, again prepping the socials, I noticed. I think it's actually a door. I don't think he's actually using Mm. it to square gun. He's actually just opening a hatch beneath him that happens to be square, which again might be a weird thing, but it's like, Oh, it's not actually a plot hole that he never uses that again. He actually never squared it. So good job. Good job guys (laughs) for paying attention, which is to say the show creators. (laughs) <laughs> we 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 love being corrected here to, on Pull to Open. Uh, many many podcasts may not. Uh, many podcasts may stick to weird views, but uh, no, we we uh, we're, we're happy to share uh, your knowledge with with our own brains that are fallible and incomplete and partially clockwork. Um, so uh, we we love accessing this big 
global brain of Doctor Who fandom uh, because you remind us of that stuff. Um, also, I couldn't remember exactly where we landed on that. I sort of feel like I remember saying that what the Clara Splinter did in that episode was to uh, open that door at just the right time. Right. Uh, which explains why the Doctor never used that sonic power again. So Yeah, I envisioned uh, her there with a the saw, basically, in, before <laughs> he got there, like, oh, it's ready for you. Yeah. Yeah. So we can, we could stick with that one too. Indeed. That was my saw impression, by the way, not a, not uh, <laughs> punching a baboon or not uh, a materialization. <laughs> yeah. That's the super fast, ludicrous speed, uh, dematerialization of the TARDIS. You're welcome. Cool. By the way, I prefer a uh, retcon to correction. Let's <laughs> uh, yeah, please, please retcon us. <laughs> that would actually be a great al- alternate title for the podcast please retcon us oh, um, wow i love it yeah <laughs> all right think of that as a second tagline after doctor who randomized all right it is time to get to this week's story and the segment that we start every time before we get into it and we're going to do so again with the girl in the fireplace is tldw too long didn't watch or too long doctor who uh, or too long did watch in this case, because I think every Foo fan has seen this one. Um, so we give one of us, in this turn, uh, it is Pete, uh, one minute oh per New Who episode, 30 seconds per Classic Who episode. Um, so you have one minute, Pete, to summarize in record time the girl in the fireplace uh, with no notes. You've, okay. you've closed all the windows. Yeah, I've seen nothing you know, except for the light know. of my camera now. Um, right. I was stalling for a while there. You could probably tell, <laughs> but I, at some point I was like, okay, let's just get this over with. And now I realize, like, I usually read a plot summary in addition to like watching the episode, just to make sure I've got it all in my head. I, mm. I haven't done that this time. So oh, okay. I'm suddenly I'm my, I feel my confidence evaporating as I, <laughs> I'm about to embark on this, but I've got to do it because uh, that's what we do here. Pull to open. It's such a well-known story. I feel like I feel like you know previous viewings are, are here for you. Yeah, uh, they're on your side. Right, so, sip of water and then I'm ready. All right. Mm. Okay. All right. In three, two, one, go. Okay. The Doctor, Mickey, and Rose materialize on a space station in the future. Um, there's something weird going on because the power is like massive. It can punch a hole in the universe, and they quickly find out. There are time windows to uh, pre-revolutionary France, and there's a little girl on the other side of one, and the doctor uh, meets her uh, go, and, and uh, goes, goes through it to meet her and, and realizes robots have come from the future uh, space station and are strangely visiting her at different points in her life. Uh, he comes repeatedly back to see her at various times. When she's an adult, they sort of almost have a romantic relationship, even though it's only been a few minutes for the doctor. It's been years for her. Uh, they put it together that these robots have gone haywire and basically have decided that they need to harvest the brain of Madame de Pompadour, who the girl happens to be, and um, to, for their ship to work. So the doctor actually shatters all the time windows uh, to, uh, to, to prevent them from doing that, robbing the robots of their mission and, and what they're time. doing. But he comes back to the space station and the girl dies uh, later because she's grown up and he never gets a chance to say goodbye to her. Sorry, I didn't do it. Oh, so close though. So close. <sighs> you, you got, you got to the part where, you know, we, we always, we unite as Dr. Who fandom and say, why couldn't he just go visit her in the TARDIS before she dies? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. It's probably one of the first things we should tackle in this commentary. Um, it is a simple story. I was kind of, I got a little lost in, you know, it's as we always do in uh, the TLDWs. On, it's so much pressure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to leave out. And this is a, one of those episodes where there are so many great emotional beats that I wanted to stop and talk about because this is, you know, you could talk about the plot, but when I, when I um, got to the romantic part of it, I really wanted to like, oh, that, I did not say like we're going to talk about it now, but it's like that's really what this story is about, <laughs> right? And um, it it just when you talk about the story, it just seems so inadequate. Yeah, it's kind of a, a rom com. It's certainly the um, you know a poignant romance uh, that the Doctor is for the first time, and perhaps arguably one could say we we could talk about this depending on how you feel about you know his whole story with Rose, perhaps the most romantic single episode. Um, yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. I'd agree. This know. is the most romantic single episode involving the doctor and the most overt exploration of the character's own sexuality. Yeah. And, and sex is, is, is clearly the, the defining factor because we, you know, we it is a myth. We'll just get this right out of the way that the fact that Madame de Pompadour invites the doctor to dance right. is a reference to the doctor's, to having sex with the doctor, you know, reference to the doctor dances, uh, where that's clearly what it meant. Um, but no, uh, Moffat has said he, he did not intend that. It's just that Moffat is such a lusty writer that this sort of stuff just comes out anyway. Uh, so even though there's a shot of the bed, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, there's some very clear implications and there is actual snogging, we will get to use of the use of the word snogging in a second. Um, <laughs> I knew we would. We're getting right into it this time. We're going right to the we're going you know, right we didn't to the do the robot to the space station to the time. We're going right to the sex part. Right to the snogging. Yeah, uh, and the shagging. Uh, but yeah, there there is no definitive shagging in this episode. I'll just say no. that it is. No, there isn't. Um, I mean, I think if you really want it to be, and if you if you do, I don't know why Doctor Who is your show. There are plenty of others <laughs> where well, it's you, a little more. You overt. watch the show, and then you go to Ao3, right, or one of those, you know, the collections of uh, slash stories and fan stories, and you. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I yeah, think if you really you want it, it out to be, there. you can. You can. You know, I'm not telling you what to put in your own Doctor Who universe, but I think it's <laughs> in. in it's it's just very Moffat is great at this actually and so is Davies to a certain extent they walk right up to the line mm. and they never quite go over it I mean um, the bed scene in particular uh, I found like okay like it's just it's right there in the foreground at the end and like she took him by the hand to the bedroom yeah. and you're just like wow okay what's going to happen here and then it's like oh the fireplace oh okay great to you be know? honest though there there is only one episode of doctor who that makes it explicit that the doctor has had sex and it is episode one an unearthly child where we learn that he has a grand daughter <laughs> well he's also been a father before they, they've said that mm. in the doctor's daughter and there's a few there's a few references to his family but yes yes i take your point um so the, the doctor the doctor shags is what i'm saying it just it's it's a fact we've always we've always known it calm yourselves classic who fans we've always known it i see what uh, you did there with the yeah. subtle silicon valley uh paraphrase 
Um, but yeah, this is like, let's get right into it. I mean, this is, the thing is that Doctor sexuality has always been something of a bit of a controversy in Doctor Who, and it was very mm-hmm. much not really touched at all. I mean, here and there, there's there's comedic bits in the, the classic series. But in the new series, with the sort of storytelling they were doing, and honestly, just updating the show in a lot of ways, I think they had to go there. And I think it, to Davy's credit, and I think mm-hmm. he's the one who really opened the door on all this, Mm-hmm. He handled it with aplomb in series one, where a you know older man takes younger girl to travel with him. I mean, how could you not go there? Mm-hmm. Uh, in particularly um, in mo- with modern audiences, where obviously in two thousand five when the show was relaunched, this you know there's there's a lot of protection, shall we say, in greater society against exploitation of those kind of relationships mm-hmm. than there were when the show was first. Uh, the classic series was on, you kind of had to. And so yeah. I'm glad they did. And I, they used it to a lot of comedic effect, but not, and, and starting the whole Rose um, uh, love story, um, which obviously there's a lot of tension with that here. Yeah. Um, but um, when in, in this story, I think you, you really just like, you know, the, and w- we could talk a little bit about Whitaker too. Like his, the fact that the, the doctor is, Play, has been played by a man. Now, he hasn't just been played by a man. And I think anyone watching this episode, if you're sort of saying the doctor's an asexual being mm. who doesn't really have a gender, like, watch the girl in the fireplace. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, like <laughs> he's a man. I mean, like, and admittedly, like, a, a wise, aged Time Lord man that yeah. the, the rules are different and the sexuality is different, but no, no question he's male right now in this yeah. episode. No, you know, we know from the existence of a granddaughter that, you know, Time Lords have sex. It's just a fact. Uh, and if Moffat and RTD are the Beatles of Who, as we as we have suggested, they're the John and Paul, then the girl in the fireplace is very much their I want to hold your hand, where it's very clear they are not just singing about wanting to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this, <laughs> this is, you know, clearly an episode relevant with not just sexuality, but the romance that comes from the connection of the minds between the two of them. Yeah, right? I agree. The doctor puts his hand on Renette's head and they share everything. And she sees how lonely he was. He becomes vulnerable for possibly the, the first time in new who possibly the first time ever that he's been that vulnerable. And, uh, you know, we, we've had, he's mentioned that his childhood was lonely before, but for someone else to see it like that, almost without his consent as it were you know he's being more vulnerable than he wants to be he's sharing mm-hmm. more than he wants through that connection because he has to look in her brain um i really like that scene for a lot of reasons yeah um, one but I it, it's kind of a little of romance right i mean that that is what romance is at its yeah. root so it's it's romance and sexuality all mixed into one but go well, ahead. it's the, the heart of the episode obviously and the, the, the both the leads play it so so well when they do that, um, the, the facial expressions, particularly on uh, Sophia Miles, which I, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Yeah. Um, they are uh, like, they, they're just, it's played to a T. Um, and I think the, 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 this sort of brings up an uncomfortable question of like, why hasn't he ever done that with other companions or, or Rose or Clara or whoever? And, I don't really have a good explanation for that, but I do feel like sometimes when we, this is sort of a difference between romantic partners and friends and the intimacies Mm. we share with them are inherently different. And I know he doesn't do so quite so deliberately here. She walks back through um, and he doesn't expect it. 
but that idea of sharing your vulnerabilities with someone new you have a connection with Mm. and things you might not even share with your family or your closest friends, I think that's very human and very real. And Mm. it's, I don't know. And and very good friend. In other words, it's like, I I still believe it, even though Mm. it kind of necessitates that I forget that he did that or he did, sorry, he hasn't done that with, with his companions generally. I mean, uh, I, I would like to posit that the doctor is a romantic in, in all senses of that word. I mean, in the way that he dresses, he, she dresses the, the way that he, she travels through, uh, the cosmos looking for adventure, uh, and friendship and connection with other people and mm-hmm. uh, just you know oh, want, totally wanting agree. to help totally a romantic there's a reason why Gallifreyans have two hearts people it's because one heart cannot contain all the all the love that this that this person has for for time and space and everyone in it uh, and and while you know the other time lords may have buried their two hearts under layers of fusty you know uh, non uh, non-interventionism um, you know, the the doctor is always someone who is very much open to that, who has opened both of her hearts to mm-hmm. to the universe and its people. So it's, you know, we need to explore that more. And we be, need to be more explicit about that. And I like it when the show does that. I like that they have turned the corner into uh, bringing doctor, the Doctor and Yaz together in, in you know, where, where we're at at this point in the current show. It's just... Uh, right. Well, we'll see. This, yeah. <laughs> but I do want to take it back to snogging because that is yes. still... That's all line back to snogging, guys. <laughs> that is still a line because the line is as as the doctor presses the button and flips the fireplace around. Which, by the way, made me feel like that. That's one part I don't think has aged well. The flipping fireplace, the uh, just sort of feels like a stage farce. Uh, which it is actually. It's yeah. a, just a quick side note is that they did build the spaceship set right next to the room set. And, and when the doctor kneels down to talk to young Renette, they're, they're actually facing each other, which is kind of a neat yeah. thing. So um, it's one of those things where I think they would took the story. I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know the realities of making a TV show, but they probably took it a little too literally when it might've been better served <laughs> by uh, it, today. If they made it today in 2022, I think you'd CGI all that. Yeah. If you, if it's a magic door as, as the doctor tries to avoid saying but ends up admitting it is then uh you know have it have it be a door that is magic um you know that said it it is it is obviously a very cheap episode we're very early into the the run of new who here doesn't have the budget that we'd later have and and hats off to them for the way that they made this look uh not cheap and we'll we'll get to a lot of the ways in which they did that but as the doctor is flipping this fireplace and on the fireplace, he says his parting shot to the French servant who walks in and says, who are, who are you, monsieur? Mm. Uh, he's like, I'm the doctor and I'm the man who I snogged Madame de Pompadour. And I just still, all these years later, I'm, I'm, I'm over the doctor's sexuality. You know, I was one of those classic Who fans. I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. Still not over that line. Still don't think that's a very doctorish line. Uh, to be that sort of giddy about it immediately. I don't know. Like it feels like with, with the doctor, his, his crush has developed pretty fast, but maybe not, not that fast. Yeah, not that, I think not I, that schoolboyish. It worked for me. Yeah. I, I think partly cause it's tenant. So tenant yeah. is, you, you talk about the doctor being romantic. Tenant really is a romantic. I mean, in the sense that mm-hmm. he is a professional romantic lead, certainly at this point in his career. And, um, you know, obviously factored into his casting. The other thing I would say is like, I think, 
at this point, he isn't giddy necessarily about just snogging someone he fancies, um, mm. but that it's... he's just realized she's a historical figure. Yes, that he and he 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 loves history, and I I, I like point. this episode for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's so much to like about it. I mean, um, mm. it's one of it's another New Who classic, but the um, the whole story kind of. In, in a big picture show sense, lends a lot of weight to the doctor's name dropping throughout the rest of the series. As you see <laughs> it, it really here does. in real time, the connection, the deep connection he forms with a historical figure, which, you know, obviously specific reasons for it. But um, I, I like this idea, the doctor jumping around history because uh, yeah. it's it's not it's not a sold in this episode. He jumps around history and has great times with Marco and, Polo and everyone else, right? I, and we hear about it a lot. And and yeah. one of one of the best, almost the only purpose that Mickey and Rose serve in this episode is to have that conversation about the Doctor, where Mickey's sort of needling uh, Rose right. about, oh, first Sarah Jane Smith, right. you know, Didn't which which Cleo reminds Patrick? us, yes. <laughs> Didn't he mention? Didn't he call Cleopatra Cleo? But I right. think that almost speaks to my point because the doctor is always like he's never necessarily kissed and told, uh, kissed and told, right? right? He, he doesn't say it as overtly as I snog about it at Pompadour. It's just they have to guess that because he calls Cleopatra Cleo, there's something more going on there, right? It was it was such a long game of learning what happened yeah. with Elizabeth the first. Right? right, so he's not that he's not a kisser and teller. Maybe he just thought the servant was like some guy. Well, who's it also it never going to see again. Uh, I yeah. will agree. Uh, you know, I, you're convincing me a bit. That is, he's sort of stepping out of his normal veneer. I do think it's in character because you're. It's again, this is all about peeling back layers and seeing the heart beneath. And mm. he, he's actually kind of more vulnerable there than he would be. To his right in front of his companions, I think it's um, weird that, that I convinced you of that because I think you convinced me, and I think now we're we've <laughs> we've switched like a fireplace. We have switched sides. But you're, you're <laughs> dead on. He's, he's not the type to kiss and tell and brag about yeah. it. It's just that yeah. he's just in the moment there, and I think he he sort of writes to, himself. Later. To his credit, he doesn't do it with Rose, although he does sort of rather rub the how much fun he's had at the party thing in in her face. Um, mm. it, although even though that turns out to be a con on the clockwork robots, which right. did, did you really need to be drunk to, to pretend to be drunk to get past those not very smart clockwork robots? Yeah. Uh, yeah. probably not, but again, it is, it's a fun scene. It is. Um, it makes you I think. Remember, I remember yeah. I had an issue with that scene at the time. I really did. For well, some reason, I remember thinking, oh, the doctor's turned into Jarvis Cocker, who's the lead singer of Pulp. It kind of had that very kind of. And I know this was a time, this is Tennant's fifth episode, yeah. right? He's still working out who his doctor is, and we're still learning who his doctor is. So is that, there's that kind of sense of, oh, maybe you've gone a bit too far here. Well, Moffat's never been great. I mean, I think this is, it works for the doctor, as a, and it, I think it works as a scene. It doesn't work with robots as opponents. And this hmm. is one of Moffat's weaknesses, which I think I'm just sort of thinking out loud about, which is that he doesn't write robots very well. Or he doesn't write <laughs> he doesn't write villains logically. He does they don't act logically. Like that's why he's never been very mm. good at writing Cybermen or Daleks or thinking about how like what what would a robot that probably you know, these it's no it's pretty clear they don't have emotions that they're robots, that they're just going through programming. What would they do in a certain moment? And you you know, a drunk guy walks in, why would they let you know, give him the floor. 
at all, right? <laughs> like, it's like, what are you doing unless he's somehow giving them information they need? And that's not clear. So they're just kind of standing there in the way humans would. Mm. Like, this guy's here, and I'm like, now it's it's a weird new situation. I should just listen to him. Whereas um, there's no reason for him to think robots would react that way. Well, my, uh, my headcanon on this, I'm just thinking about it now. I think my, my headcanon on this is that acting in an unusual way makes them want to scan him for, for good body parts. Uh, right. Because that is that is what they're after, after all. Um, speaking of robots that don't make sense, this, this whole episode is predicated on basically a shaggy dog story about hmm. robots who misunderstood the name of their ship, punched a hole in time with massive amounts of energy to get the original owner of the name of their ship and to insert her brain physically into the console of the ship. Um, yeah, <laughs> which reminds me, have you seen the uh, mini webisode that uh, came in 2020 uh, that Moffat no. added for sort of the the lockdown rewatch of this? Uh, it's just called Pompadour, and it is they use entirely you know clips from from uh, the episode, but it is uh, uh, new dialogue spoken by Sophia Sophia. Um, as Madame de Pompadour talking about how Versailles is strangely silent now since you've gone, Doctor. And, you know, I remember you telling me that the uh, robots were going to scan me and perhaps they were going to insert my memories into the ship somehow and they might back up a digital copy and that person would be so lonely. And why am I so lonely, Doctor? And, you know, so it slowly cuts this one new scene that they filmed for it, which is. Uh, the, the, supposedly the console of the ship, right? So it's clear that mm. this is, you know, a a version of Madame de Pompadour, who who was digitally inserted into the ship and is now there for all time. Wow! Like they copied mm. her consciousness and they didn't yes. the brain itself. Got it. Wow! I, I I had how did I miss this? I, I, <laughs> I had no idea this existed. I got to go check it out. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, you know, it's recent. It's beginning of the pandemic, so it's uh, you know. I don't, I don't fault anyone for not noticing anything in the last two years uh, because we are still in March 2020 after all. But to your point about this is a story, the motivation for the robots is something, you know, um, grotesquely con contorted mm -hmm. both f in the story and in, you know, uh, in analyzing the story, um, you know, is well taken. I, Again, for some reason, it works. I mean, it's not it does. satisfying in the way that like a diabolical plot being unraveled would be and sort of answering a big question. But for, for some reason, that final little almost coda bit of the seeing the, ex, extra, uh, the exterior of the space station and the yep. name come up and you're just like, oh, you know, mm -hmm. I get it. It's. It's one of those, it's, it's not quite M. Night Shyamalan, but it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of in <laughs> it's the same vein. A, it's a satisfying click in the brain as the whole story clicks into place, like right. a neat little clockwork mechanism. There you go. Um, yes. I mean, the, the job of any good Who writer is to make you ignore the massive weirdness and, and plot holes that would have had to have been filled for this thing to actually happen in reality, right? So, yeah. You know, uh, Moffat is good at that, and he's he's better than you might think watching this episode, because watching this episode, you might think, why is that horse on a 51st century spaceship? Right. And maybe you can go off and create your own headcanon as to that. But there was a deleted scene, Yeah. right? You want to, you want to tell us about the deleted scene? I think yeah. it was the, the horse master was known as, like, cholera guy or something. Yeah, there was... Um 
I'm not sure what it's known as, but apparently it, it, it was, I haven't seen it. I don't know if it's on the DVD or not. Um, I didn't, I didn't look enough, but the, I did read about it so that the, um, the scene where the doctor eavesdrops on Renette and her friend outdoors, apparently mm. there was an adjunct to that scene where the stable master comes by and basically is like, where's that horse? He's really mean. And he's just like, I'm going to whip that horse within an inch of its life. And, you know, sort of justifying a little bit, the doctor quote unquote, keeping the horse, Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of keeping him, keeping it out of uh, pre-revolutionary France, which is fine. Um, and it speaks to a little bit like, again, I think uh, I, if you're thinking about w- what happened to the horse by the end of this episode, you're a little bit like, or how did, why, why did the doctor think he could keep it? I think you're yeah. probably missing the point. So I don't, <laughs> I'm, I think it was a good cut. And I, I, it speaks to sort of a point, I guess, I think in Moffat's writing career, at least for the show. Mm-hmm. Or he might have overwrote a little bit here and there. And there's there's actually one other element of the story. I don't I'm not sure if I actually I don't think they filmed it, but it originally they were going to write it so that the thing that makes her brain ready for mm-hmm. the robots is the mind meld. You know, like right. once that happens, then it's like, oh, now her brain's baked. Um they obviously didn't go with that. Uh, and partly I think because, you know, they wanted her older and they wanted more windows on her timeline, but also like it's one thing too many to, yeah. to that the thing that the, the plot, you know, hinges around. Um, and it didn't, it really wasn't necessary. So um, they're haywire. Yeah. They, need, they think they need her brain. That's really all you want. And that she has, they have to wait till she's the exact same age as the ship itself. Right. Exactly. Yeah, which which is nice because it introduced that element of uncertainty. It's like you know, it, she's 30, she has to be thirty seven and some number of days. We don't know the number of days, so I like that. But I also would have liked a version where the Doctor is somehow responsible for all of this in the first place, sort of thereby increasing the timey wimeyness of it all, mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of increasing this. It's always very interesting when you think, well, the Doctor is going through time causing as many problems as he solves. Well, it would also explain why he doesn't do it much. If mm. it is one of these things where he's leaving too much of his own imprint somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, it would be like, oh, what? that's sort of going off the line. Like you, you, I like how New Who does this quite a bit, even if you think about um, the fuel for the Daleks that they kind of retcon, that it's like if you've traveled through time, you can sort of power them in a weird way, um, which uh, was a, a neat little thing they put in in the first series. Um, and they kind of forgot about, <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. okay. But it is one of those things that sort of shows like, oh, the doctor actually is, is, the, is the catalyst a lot of the times for really trouble is. being afoot. Um, and speaking so. of catalysts, I think this episode was in itself a catalyst, perhaps, or at least a blueprint for what new who was going to be like right and it's it's super interesting watching it now uh instead of coming straight from uh, school reunion which was our first tenant episode oddly enough and now we're here in the next episode uh you know had we watched it that way around we'd probably be doing a lot of commenting on the fact that uh you know rose and mickey's relationship seems to have improved dramatically right. in the five <laughs> seconds they were off screen um but no, we, we don't care about that. But what we do see, looking backwards, is a lot of the template for New Who, because, uh, and a lot of the template for the Moffat era, because um, Renette is very much Amy Pond. She's very much the girl who waited. Mm-hmm. It's You can almost see how Moffat stole from himself for, for the 11th hour here. He's just recycling ideas. I don't know if that makes this look worse or the 11th hour look worse, but... 
Um, right. That's that's the fascinating thing. He also admits that he was influenced by the time traveler's right wife. Yeah, that's a pretty obvious influence. You can see, um, which is you know clearly also an influence on River Song. Another reason why it's interesting that we came straight from Silence of the Library, Forest of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I will say and- in, in Moffat's defense on some of this is that the idea of time being nearly instantaneous for one person and long for another person is you know it's it's kind of an obvious way place to go with mm-hmm. almost any time travel story and davies sure. himself did it with um the world war three and i forget the first yeah. part of that one a- but basically aliens of london yeah, yeah like yeah. when rose which i really liked like rose he just sort of casually has rose come back a year later and then mm-hmm. but actually deals with the real consequences of that which was uh, yeah. which was quite good yeah yeah rtd is is like sort of 80 percent interested in in fun timey-wimey stuff that that had never been done before oddly in the entire history of classic who right. uh but but moffat really goes hell for leather yeah. filling in all the gaps of all the possible time travel stories right yeah uh with no, perhaps yeah. you know chibnall bringing up the rear with eva the daleks which is something that we hadn't quite seen before you know the classic time loop episode that we see in so much but uh but yeah, anyway, to get back to this as a blueprint, it's also got the blueprint of the lonely god aspect of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, the sort of slightly more, more romantic aspect that would start to play out with Rose and then with, you know, <laughs> with uh, Martha and then with Clara, well, uh, with Amy for a little bit and then with Clara. Um, so it's it's a blueprint for a lot of that. So it's, it's sort of interesting coming back, rewatching it now, it kind of it seems so remarkable at the time. It mm. kind of just seems less remarkable now. It just seems like a kind of you know definitely in the top ten percent of New Who episodes. But having watched all the subsequent stuff that flowed from it, from the the success of this idea, um, looks perhaps a little bit diminished. Yeah, it's almost like I, I I probably see it. I wouldn't say diminished. I don't think that's quite the right word because I, I get what you're saying. And I would use as an analogy, um, James Bond movies where mm. it, it's a, they became formulaic. Uh, they, they kind of are formulaic, uh, but mm-hmm. the, um, when you see the original formula. So I feel like when James Bond, the formula got established with like Goldfinger. Uh, in my mm-hmm. mind, like that's where, you know, a lot of the tropes of bigger than life villains, diabolical plots, um, you know, various, various other things. I mean, there were other sort of like stuff just in a couple of movies before that. But when you go back and watch Goldfinger, um, I don't know, you can you can appreciate it. But at the same time, sort of recognize that, oh, it's a. This is this is this is when all this stuff was new and interesting mm. and yeah. original. Um, and maybe like you're right. That. It's a little bit like you can't go home again because you can't yeah. replicate those same feelings you had. Because I, I I hear what you're saying because you can't have the same reaction. Like we were all kind of agape about how cool this was when it happened, and now we're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I remember feeling that way. But now that it it's been repeated so many times and done again and again. Mm. Um, and it's maybe ways. more that way than a lot of the early Moffat stuff. Like I feel like uh, Empty Child, the Doctor Dancer, still holds up um, mm-hmm. in a, in a different way. And uh, certainly, as we saw last time, Silence in the Library, Forest of the Dead, really holds up. Yeah. Uh, speaking of replicating lines, did we deal? We we dealt with the replicating line with uh, Donna 
and Rose, right? Where Donna goes a little bit further. We haven't discussed uh, it, but I definitely oh, want yeah, to. Let's talk about I, that. I, I really like see like this is the randomizer was not random at all and like in this, no. this is the line that emphasizes it because in both times the doctor says i'm always all right obviously yeah. i think moffat was very knowingly repeating the line and giving yeah. a different take and it did seeing rose this time i mean i, I don't want to diminish billy piper and the cool mm-hmm. stuff they were doing with her relation her character's relationship with the doctor i think all of that was solid but you you got yeah, with with Donna and Catherine Tate, I just feel like the way they played out that line with her response, um, which if 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 you don't remember, basically he says, "I'm always all right." She counters with, "Is that special Time Lord talk for not really being all right at all?" And then he kind of looks at her and sort of like, "Why?" And she says, "Well, mm. because I'm all right too." Yeah. And I felt Beautiful like moment. that it's such a mature, gentle way to to deepen their bond you know like yeah. that her like in other words donna's response is better than rose's it's a v- true friend response yeah, and it really yeah. like um i think i think it speaks to a lot of what a lot of people think which is that donna in terms of new who might be the best companion and is, is people regard her as like uh, the the best one of the new era and it's because of those those mm. moments she's not just there for the ride she really sees the doctor as a true friend and equal um and 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 a romantic who suffers just like her yeah yeah totally yeah, because you really. think about like think about a response and like you know like you could be a jerk about it and call him mm. out a little bit on like oh you're mm-hmm. not you you're just saying you're all right you're not really all right but she she does it in such a way that actually lets him lets him know it's okay to let down your guard yeah um now that's that's a true companion and yeah that this is sort of why the the, the doctor's interest in rose always i was you know, I I like the romance. I like it, you know, it, it it kind of it works eventually, right? But it just sort of like Rose is is not that perceptive in a lot of ways. Hmm. Like of of the doctor's emotion, you you'd think that he would go for someone with a bit more of a of a mature emotional perception, but who knows? I mean, maybe you you could argue the doctor as a child in in that sense as well. Like he hasn't done a lot of exploration of his emotions and his journeys he's pushed it away by going out and helping other people yeah and i think um the rose thing works but i think it works in the context of you know the 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 era right which was like this is very fresh he's last of the time lords he's supposed to be very wounded doctor emotionally and you could argue whether that was really successfully portrayed in in those seasons i mean you know it's obviously different writers and they're they're also trying to be episodic and be true Mm -hmm. to the show so there are times where he seems really dark and wounded and there are times when he's just sort of happy-go-lucky so um but i do think her character even though there's there's you know you might argue she's kind of immature and 19 i think the fact that she was there for him during that era you can kind of like understand why he would have such a deep bond uh, with someone because he really mm-hmm. needed it. Then. He did, he did, and and she was there, and she's, you know, uh, obviously, you know, uh, spunky and helpful and easy on the eye and all, all these things mm-hmm. that uh, one might think would would attract us if we were in that sort of emotionally wounded situation. And if I can but, quote um, another uh, different sci-fi show, she's yeah. just at the beginning of the adventure. Yes, that's, indeed. That's, I don't know if you know that one. That's that's, <laughs> <I don't>. a, <laughs> that's actually a line from uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, and it's a line uh, that uh, 
uh, Captain Picard says to Wesley Crusher at some point in I think, uh, one of his last appearances on the show. That good he one. That, he envies Wesley because he's just at the beginning of the adventure. Shout yeah. out to our TNG peeps. Yeah. Um, love it. <laughs> I always love it when I bring uh, up Klingons. Speaking of the ending, I have literally just thought of some headcanon on uh, why the Doctor can't go back to see Madame de Pompadour. Go. In, Real in time. Headcanon. Yes. The new he is. He is st- we see him standing in the TARDIS reading her letter. Right. Right. In which she says, well, you know, she's based, the better is like, letters like, why, why didn't you come? Why aren't you here? I'm very sick. That letter itself creates the fixed point in time. Mm-hmm. And he's, he waits to read it. To the, like he takes the letter from Louis the 15th, which by the way, the doctor super dismissive of Louis the 15th, all episode. Oh, you're the King <laughs> of France. I'm the Lord of time. A uh, little jealous, perhaps <laughs> doctor, um, you know, you'd like hanging out with historical figures, don't you? Unless they happen to be sleeping with a historical figure that you like. Anyway, um, unless they're dudes. <laughs> unless this they're particular dudes. incarnation, less interested in the dudes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that would change. But, um, yeah, he so he that's why he takes the letter and he goes back to the TARDIS, does not read it in front of the king, does not read it anywhere in the Palace of Versailles. He's standing in the TARDIS because I think he thinks in his own head, if he opens the letter and it's just sort of general non-specific stuff that would sort of allow for a loophole where he could use the TARDIS, uh, he would do that. But that's, that's why he looks so devastated when he's reading the letter in the TARDIS because he knows now uh, and the TARDIS also right. knows now that she's a fixed point in time. That letter would, it would be a paradox. The letter would vanish. It would just, like if he went back yeah. at any point at all to see her now. So the letter itself is the fixed point in time. Yeah, I yeah. like that headcanon. Like it's just make, it makes me think, I love it. It's, it's a great, great explanation. And it makes me, I'm probably going to be more hyper-conscious now of when he says, when time can be rewritten, which he did mm. say in our last stop in Force to the Dead. Was that yeah. the first time in, I, I, I this is basically me asking the listeners for an audit of the times the doctor has said time can be rewritten in New Who. Um, and I know the yes, rules please. that have been inconsistent, but... Please retcon us. Yeah. Right in and retcon. And I think I think it's interesting. It, it might be an interesting exploration sometime on like when... Well, what are the rules? How have they changed? Because they clearly change in this era too, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they're, uh, they're they're fairly consistent. And this is the thing: this is there is a hand wave in the episode, and it's it, it's the same hand wave you get in any Doctor Who episode. So you you can't. It's not a call out at all. It's just that they're like, why don't we use the TARDIS to go back to the palace? Because the time windows, for whatever reason, we can't get through because the robots have have jammed them. And mm-hmm. it's like, well. We can't do that because we're part of events, and it's just part of okay, events. Yeah, <laughs> okay, we're part of events. When are you not part of events, Doctor? Yeah, and the thing is, like time travel stories, they they don't work for this reason. Because why can't you just keep do? If you theoretically had time travel, you could literally do anything. So you mm. need to have some rules of the road. But this is the consistent rule of the road for Doctor Who generally. Mm. And again, it is like you do it when you need to, and you don't. You can't when mm. you don't. But it does kind of make some kind of sense. In that, like, maybe he should have just turned to Rose and raised his eyebrows and go, "Remember Father's Day." Yeah, well, that's the. I'm glad you got ahead of me because it's like <laughs> that's kind of like there's probably more than one time, but there's certainly that is the most overt time where they completely ignored the rule and and mm. just and kind of saw what happened. And um, that said, you know, they they sort of show the consequences of that when you forget the Blinnievich limitation effect or whatever. Well, basically, <laughs> time monsters come and just eat time. 
Yes, and that would really put a crimp in his travels with Madame de Pompadour. Yeah, uh, the perhaps the best TARDIS companion who never was. Right. Uh, yeah, that that would have been a fantastic. And I think that's part of what you think. I mean, you sort of feel like the story is heading there anyway. You know, she's not going to be a a future companion or anything like that. But um, but it's fun. But to it's think about. Of, it's fun to think about, and you sort of if for that scene to work, you have to think that it's a possibility. The Doctor does want her to take it through time and space. Which, by the way, how would have that have worked with Rose? I mean, come on, right. Doctor, you're just collecting a harem now. Um, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't ask the tenant, Doctor. He's you know what? I, I sort of I can see a farce here where he sort of resets up the old uh, backup control room. And he, he makes them think individually that he's only traveling with them. <laughs> so he's like one of these polygamists who's like, yes. oh my God, that is so funny. That's a Just great... Just back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> Alternate adventures. That would actually be great for the show if we could set this up because then you, you'd have, you know, one one uh, actor would only be filming on, like, you know, would reduce the, the weight on the, uh, on the cast. Yeah. Uh, except for whoever's playing the doctor. That'd be a fun, elaborate. That could, you know what? I'm, I'm actually thinking this would make a good like mini season or season <laughs> where they do it, and maybe it's even the same person just at different points in their time stream. And he's he's kind of like it's for him. It's like uh, right now and all the time, and for them, it's like years later. Oh man, I, mm. Moffat, dude, you got to <laughs> come, come back and write this. Or or RTD, you know, I, yeah. I feel like he he has the chops to write a uh, sex farce like that. So uh, yeah, bring bring it on in, RTD. Let's make Doctor Who controversial again. Hmm. Um, all right. So let's speaking of Madame de Pompadour, mm-hmm. uh, also known as Jean Antoinette. I'm going to butcher her name. My apologies to my French teacher, mother, and sister uh, for all of the French I'm about to butcher. But uh, Jean Antoinette Poisson. Mm. Her family name was Poisson. How did the fu- doctor not make a joke of that? Um, she's a fish. Too many, Too many jokes <laughs> to make already. I know. Uh, but that was that was her name. Uh, she was not actually, she's called Renette uh, throughout and, and describes herself as that on first meeting with the doctor. Right. That was actually historically inaccurate. So uh, let's talk about the real Madame de Pompadour. I will okay. go forward through her timeline as the doctor does. So she was born to, uh, we, it's actually a bit of a potential scandal over her birth, um, uh, to uh, just a, a dude, France, Francois Poisson, <laughs> a dude, uh, but, Fish a guy. dude <laughs> and, uh, and his wife, but it's suspected that his bio, uh, her biological father was some other uh, fancy financier or possibly a tax collector. Oh yeah. Dude, so, she was you from know, Paris, right? She was from Paris? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so already mired in scandal, and then at age nine she goes to a fortune teller, Madame de Lebon. Okay. Which I'm going to get here a little bit early. I think that Madame Le- de Lebon may actually be the Clara Splinter. Oh wow! Because okay. the fortune teller predicted that the girl would one day reign over the heart of a king. Oh my. Wow. I like so, I like this. Uh, who are they the, talking the, about? Exactly. I like this as the idea of a Clara Splinter because I like to think that what the fortune teller actually said was hearts. Plural. <laughs> maybe her French wasn't great, so she couldn't figure out the plural. Right. Uh, but doesn't this, it, the whole thing about her name, um, like she was eight in the show, right? That's the yes, inaccuracy. Yeah. Yes. So that's the inaccuracy because she only got that name Renette, meaning, you know, little queen. 
Right. Um, oh, because yes. after the fortune tale, got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. So, like, I forgot that. Yeah, Renette. Okay. So, from that age, just as you could uncom- uncomfortably pr- suggest that she was being groomed by the doctor, she was, in fact, being groomed by her parents to be the mistress of Louis Fifteenth. Wow. Um, from the age of nine. Yes, and wow. she does, in fact, you know, uh, as the show suggests, at the, the Yew Tree Ball, she does, in fact, meet the king. She'd met him before that, like, basically went on a hunt with him and was supposed to stick at the back, but rode her horse out boldly in front of the king to catch his attention. And then she shows up at the ball, dresses Diana, the hunter goddess, right, to, to reference that instant. And it's this whole deep seduction wow. that she was into. She was super smart French about the way she went yeah, and so she was made. She made an alliance with the queen. Basically, the show is right, right about that. She became a lady in waiting to the queen, which is as high as you could go, and still be a woman in the French court. But it was still a very powerful position, being the the king's sort of officially sanctioned mistress. And yeah. in that position, she basically became the prime minister of France. She was choosing a lot of the ministers, and the ministers that she chose had huge historical importance on the direction that France took, I mean, you know, she sort of has been credited with revitalizing the economy, but also France made an alliance with Austria. Don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep into history, even though I am a history nerd. Mm -hmm. France made this alliance with Austria, which led to the Seven Years' War, which led to France losing its North American colonies, a lot of them, to Britain uh, and Canadian colonies. Britain at the time. Yes. and uh, arguably, you could say that the modern United States, the modern Canada, would, would look different, may not even exist uh, without Madame de Pompadour's uh, unknowing intervention wow. in this matter. And by yeah. extension, Clara's ex- intervention, where <laughs> yes. she, she named her Renette or, or then you know, gave her the inspiration to do that. That's yeah. way to go, Clara. <laughs> uh, another another interesting, fun historical fact about Madame de Pompadour, she did give her name to the Pompadour hairstyle, but it's actually a historical misnomer because she didn't never wore her hair up. See, I like was wondering that about this stuff because she never has like really a pompadour. I mean she yeah. you know, she combs her hair back, but that's not what a pompadour is, right? So yeah. like I, I thought like, oh, they kind of missed an opportunity there. But I guess it's actually historically accurate is what you're telling yeah. me, that she never actually wore her hair that way. Yeah, the hairstyle precedes her and post-seeds her. Um, but she she herself always right. wore her hair down. For, so well done, Doctor Who, for that inaccuracy. Well, they, they get, they, oddly, they, they get the age something. of her death. Sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to finish this off, but just to say that she died age 42, not 43 in the show, which is one of the weirdest little historical inaccuracies. (laughs) Also, come on, 42 is right there. Maybe that's why he had to change it. A minute or two on the space station, which apparently is a lot of time in the real world. Mm. So maybe her personal time was 43. Mm. Let's go with that. The doctor corrects the historical record. Yes. Yeah, I want, I want to make sure these are all retconned and explained. So the nine-year-old <laughs> thing, I mean, I think it's only the doctor's read that she's mm. eight. So maybe she was really nine yeah. in that in that uh, for initial fireplace meeting. Um, though they do probably time it a little bit. I forget if they say the year, but they, she does say it's months later. Um, so there's that one. Um, and everything else seems to check out, though. Yeah, yeah, it really yeah. does. So it's, you know, bravo, Doctor Who, for, for getting us interested in an actual uh, historical character 
are really showing us that for once in a way that the show, you know, barring the occasional appearance of Churchill and, you know, guest right. stars playing, you know, James the first, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It, it just sort of d- doesn't kind of get into it this deeply with a historical figure. So, so hats off to them with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they went really, out of their way to, to make it really accurate. And um, even some of the details in the sets, I mean, the, uh, I got to say, like a lot of the style of of what they did with the how they made it at least look like France, and even the pan down from the stars mm. at the beginning, and mm. the they they do it again with the space station. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot of that of like they're all looking up at the same stars, even toward the end when yeah. the doctor seemingly trapped. I thought all of that was, you know, just really nice. Like a lot of attention to detail in this episode. You just went over the mm. historical detail, but they they really. I think they knew they had a corker and they were like, let's mm. really um, go for it. And one of the th- things we talked about with effects, um, you know, obviously done cheaply, there was the whole, the, the big rescue scene with the horse yeah. coming the through. The horse bursting through the mirror. Yeah. That all, almost didn't get filmed. Um, yeah. Apparently. Because that, <laughs> yeah. surprisingly, they don't allow horses in stately homes <laughs> in Britain. Certainly not allow, don't allow them to smash through mirrors. When I, when I read about that, I actually heard about it through the commentary, and they, uh, it, it always stuns me, like, come on, it's TV. You know, like, <laughs> if, isn't that like your free pass to do anything? We're like, <laughs> let us do the horse in here. It's a TV show, man. Uh, but apparently yeah. they, they had a lot of difficulty. They had to do green screen. They had to have tenant on not just a horse, but also like a weird high tricycle thing. And th- there's like so many shots that they did to make that happen. But I'm glad they did because mm. um, it's, it's just so climactic. It's just like, wow. Like you just yeah. burst right through. Um, it's so clearly an effect, but it is like you're you're so right with the heroic moment that you're basically like, yeah, man, go for it. It's and, it's very good editing. So I think you only really notice on a rewatch that it is chroma keyed to use the technical term right. that the doctor is sort of chroma keyed in there in a sort of way that you would definitely fix in post with with better CGI today. But it cuts away from that climactic scene so quickly that you don't, your eye barely has time to register that it's an effect. Yeah, and when there's that close up on Tenant winking at Renette. Yeah. It's he's actually on one a weird mechanism that's be, he's being pushed around the room, uh, not a, not a horse. Um, it, but I you know it, it they pulled it off. It's it's such a great weirdly thing. yeah. It's it's weirdly more more compelling than the than Capaldi on horseback, which I think was was actually a real horse in Deep Breath, right? Uh, which this episode shares shares another connection with Deep Breath. Of course, is when the Clockwork Robots returned, yeah, from uh, from a sister ship. Yeah, which was an interesting choice. Again, mm. Moffat recycling. Um, mm. You know, not that anyone was dying to see them again, but I will give them like points on the the, the design of those guys is oh really really cool. It's so I, good. I would love to have like just one of them as a sort of a uh, a souvenir prop. If I, uh, I don't know if they're probably either dismantled or in other fans' places, or maybe David Tennant has one. But that would be like. <laughs> If I had like one of the my choice, I'd almost want that more than a Dalek because it's just so unique. It really is, especially if it could move. It would be such a mm. great animatronic thing. Yeah, it could uh, wind it up. Collectors would pay Boku bucks for that. Um, and it's sort of interesting that it does. It's one of the few monsters where the Doctor actually compliments how beautiful the monster looks. Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, we, we, we should say the masks still hold up. Yes. They're still super creepy. Carnival masks, you can't go wrong. 
making them creepy with powder wigs on top. Well, I watched uh, this one with my eight-year-old daughter, actually. Yeah. She was excited to watch it. I, I remember it not being as scary as Force of the Dead. She found it way scarier. She she almost had to leave the room, but, you know, she just snuggled into me. But it was, I, 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 in, in hindsight, I was like, I, I was almost slapping my head, of course. There's a scene with a monster under the bed of an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> it's like, yes, and that whole scene has the clock ticking effect, which is just perfect. Yes. Suspense building, Moffat writing. So good. I love that scene because he really builds up the thing of like, if that clock is broken, then what's that sound? And it gives you that delicious sort of the call is coming from inside the house, yeah. chill down the spine. Well, And I love that as a signature thing. That they mm-hmm. break the clocks because they make clock noises, and I, I've you know if they ever do use them again, I, that that should be the reveal, right? Like mm. that they're somewhere, and then what's going on here? And then there's it's a broken clock. Like what does that mean? And the doctor would be like, "Oh no!" And it's just mm-hmm. boom, here they come. I also like that the doctor sort of says he he it is sort of an such an aesthetically beautiful object, this monster, yeah. that he almost feels bad about destroying it but that's not going to stop him yeah which i think wonderfully shows uh really deepens the character of the doctor really shows his two sides there you know he's a romantic he believes in the aesthetic beauty of uh, a lot of things uh not not perhaps not the rubber suited variety perhaps not zygons uh but but definitely clockwork monsters yeah i mean he always has to do the right thing one more thing about the monsters and i think this is a good testament to the writing of like why they're like they're really creepy, but they never do anything that physically imposing or, or horrific, right? Like they, mm. they have one early, the early scene with the bedroom, you do see the, it's the, the robots get as physical as they get in this episode. And which is the guy swings at the doctor a bunch of times and eventually embeds his uh, blade in the fireplace. So that's sort of letting the doctor trap him, but they're never quite that, physical again they never quite get that threatening but that's enough that combined with the organs powering the space station gives you enough to like you don't actually need them to do anything again like you're scared it is interesting that yes people die off screen before the episode starts right right on the madame de pompadour ship um 17 crew members was it it's you know and it is yeah, quite, I forget what it grisly is. Quite grisly in so scene, yeah. those scenes. But a lot of people die. But nobody actually, am I correct in this? Nobody actually dies except of natural causes in the episode, except uh, yeah, yeah. Renette dying at the end. Yeah, I think you're right. Come to think of it, the, the, the robots never really kill anybody. Yeah. Um, so just yeah. as in Silence of the Library and Empty Child, Dr. Dances, uh, it's almost a case of nobody dies or nobody dies who didn't have to die. Yeah. One thing that also they did, so just because it's occurring to me as they, as we talk about clocks and the robots in that scene, David Tennant, um, well, he talked about in the commentary how the loose connection in the fireplace, restoring the one time window for him to get back was a bit mm-hmm. of a fudge for him. And he kind of didn't quite get it, but he went along with it. And I got to say this, I've been listening to commentaries that I hadn't before as we've done these episodes and every time I listen to a David Tennant commentary, it convinces me he's a stickler for these details and a stickler for things making sense, which I think is great. Like he, he once, uh, I think when we talked about, Oh, what was it? The, uh, the wire episode where he gets his coat on at the end because it looks cool for the scene where he's on the tower 
Right, the idiot's lantern. Um, idiot's yeah. lantern. That was it. And but in the commentary, he reveals like, yeah, why would he do that though? You know, like he doesn't need the code. And it's like, well, then he sort of justified it in his mind, like, well, he's carrying a bunch of things, and the code has pockets, so that's going to help mm. him carry more things. So what I this got me thinking this time because I've seen it so many times, and now it's really convinced me he's a stickler. How interesting it would have been to have seen a season of David Tennant and Stephen Moffat which was actually mm. considered for a little bit before yeah. uh, he made the final decision to leave the show and they cast Matt Smith for Series 5. Because um, there, there could have been an alternate season where it's David Tennant's last with Amy Pond and, mm. you know, again, with preserving a lot of the timey-wimey stuff. But I do feel like once Moffat was showrunner, he got a, away with a lot more or let himself get away with a lot more of hand-waviness. Of things it is interesting. Sense. But if Tennant it's was very there... Interesting. Yeah, very interesting to consider what an alternate version of the eleventh hour. Well, it's not the called the eleventh hour, but it's right. you know Tennant's new season with Amy Pond would look like. Would it almost look like the show backtracking because we we would have just come from Donna, who, right. you know, was his I just want a mate, um, <laughs> you know, companion to another sort of romantic interest for Tennant's Doctor. I think there might have been more rolling of eyes kind of the, than there was for Matt Smith. You know, it also just would have it would have maybe would have just been too obvious a repeat of the of the girl in the fireplace. You know, you couldn't recycle that plot. Yeah, so you would agreed. have had to I have looked elsewhere. I, I, I like the universe we're in. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> uh I don't know if we needed a season five of David Tennant's run. Um mm. but it does make me wonder a little bit about um you know, who was keeping Moffat honest in later years? Because when he had Davies and I think to some extent Tennant here to call out his scripts on like, wait a minute, does this make sense or doesn't it? Do we need a line? Do we need another layer to this to make sure it works? Um, he probably had fewer of those filters later. And I think he's well served by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For sure. Can I just throw in one more thing about Madame de Pompadour? Please. Um, I, I, you know, so it, it plays into a lot of what we were talking at the, about at the, the start of the episode about, you know, the, the, um, question of the, the doctor's sexual relationship with her. So Madame Pompto actually stopped being the mistress of the king in, in 1750. Oh, wow. Uh, which is quite early. Uh, she died in 1764. So oh, wow. Like 14 years. Yeah. And uh, it was in part attributed to her poor health. Uh, she had whooping cough, colds, bronchitis. Uh, she had three miscarriages wow. uh, to the king um, and, and many other potential you know, uh, ailments. She uh, tried to increase her libido with truffles, celery, and vanilla. <laughs> As one does. As well, as you do, uh, you know we've we've all tried, we've all seen that remedy on the cover of Cosmo, <laughs> um, and uh, admitted that she had the misfortune to be a very cold temperament. That's right, she was a cold fish, um, but she, from that point on, Madame de Poisson, uh, became known as the friend of the king and was still sort of, you know, uh, had a close friendship with the king. Now you could read this one or two ways when you connect it to the girl in the fireplace, either she was so in love with the doctor that she sort of made up this reason why she couldn't sleep with the king anymore. And that mm. kind of makes the girl in the fireplace even more romantic. Like, Oh, I love it. She wanted to save herself. It's a history uh, 
right? <laughs> um, but also, you could read that as this is why they did the Doctor and Madame de Pompadour did not actually have a sexual relationship because she couldn't. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, covers a lot of bases. By the time. Do you think, by the way, that they had chemistry because uh, Sophia and uh, David Tennant dated for a little while, uh, like about a year after this episode? Did you know that? I did, yeah. yeah. In fact, sometimes I, I, I get confused about which of the guest stars he married. <laughs> right. <laughs> he married the one who played his daughter, Peter. I think right. we thought that'd yes. be, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do, yes, I've been corrected. Uh, but the... <laughs> I, I thought it worked. Was, I thought, yeah, it's hard to forget that. Yeah, I, I thought anyway. they had chemistry. I thought it was, um, it it really worked, and I think it has a lot to do with both of them really giving it their all, and um, Tennant really thinking about those details. I mean, mm. and I think probably he thought about those details because he was like, "Wow, you know, like this girl's this girl's hot," you know, like yeah. I've got to turn to come. But there was a scene that, according to the commentary, anyway, that it was David Tennant's choice. Was mm. he had his glasses on? Um, in character mm. when he was in the uh, when the first time he sees her as an adult, and mm-hmm. then um, when she walks in, she, he he pulls them off just just uh, just like that. And uh, for those listening, Chris <laughs> has just pulled off his glasses. And, I just did the sexy librarian thing and pulling off the glasses and shaking the hair. But, but yes. it was you know it's the, the thing of like when you encounter someone you really are attracted to you'd be like oh wow now now of course i'm wearing my glasses right when i you know so he (laughs) sort of whips them off and uh, you know playing up those sort of um sort of sexy moments or those those attraction moments rather um right from the get-go which i think was a great choice and Mm. um yeah i I was i was convinced what did you think i i I like to think that he got her to go out by saying uh i'm a method actor you know let's (laughs) grab a drink Uh, (laughs) Uh, but times, yeah, no, huh? oddly, I didn't. I didn't. I was surprised when I discovered that they dated. I couldn't necessarily see it, which I think sort of adheres to this general rule that chemistry on screen and chemistry off screen are, you know, inversely uh, connected. Right? Mm-hmm. You, you either have one or you have the other, and uh, you know, they, they didn't necessarily. I mean, it, they sold it to me, but I definitely thought that they were acting. Yeah, I, I could. I see what you mean. Did you think he has mm-hmm. more chemistry with Rose? Yeah, I think he does because That's they they have time they have time to build it up, mm-hmm. right? So when I think about the Doctor's relationship with Rose, I'm thinking about multiple episodes, yeah, multiple moments, and actually I think they sold that more because of the way Billy Piper always always looks at him, yeah, like it's it's much more selling it on her side. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's almost like he's when he's smiling at her, he's smiling at the reflection of him in her eyes. Well, and she brings uh, her A game a lot. I got to say, I yeah. I haven't talked enough about the dialogue in this uh i mean it's moffat so it's mm. almost a given there's lots of clever dialogue but one of the best lines is is it's actually rose and the doctor but rose i think billy piper gives her best um line here which you're not keeping the horse and he's like i let you keep mickey <laughs> like it, it's such a great punchline. it had like my i was watching this not just my eight-year-old daughter but my whole family it just had us all cracking up that line again like so good Speaking of lines, though, uh, you're Mr. Thick, Thickety, Thick Face from Thick Town, Thickania. <laughs> too much? Is <laughs> maybe a little a step too far in the, the, the doctor's impersonation of a drunk person uh, when he's talking to the robots. And then, and then he adds, and so's your dad, hmm. referring to another robot. Uh, 
Yeah, just Not, the, you know that that doesn't quite land as well. But yes, the dialogue that you're talking is, is is brilliant. There's some some great lines like the you know we're on a spaceship have have some you know there, there are time windows open to France have some perspective. Yeah, yeah. Mickey. What's pre-revolutionary uh, France doing on a spaceship? Yeah. Like when he asked about the horse. And there I, is also yeah. one line of dialogue we should mention uh, that that would not be inserted in in Doctor Who today because of the fact that it is very consciously for a transatlantic audience. Uh, Rose would most definitely not say that the crew members on the ship might have just uh, gone out for a fag, <laughs> which might confuse some people in the U.S. <laughs> I, I did know what a fag is in, yes. in British context, so. But I also think like it's a cigarette, people. I, I like again the Doctor Who can be educational. I think it's very clear from what she's saying. Like obviously, mm. she's not talking about like what an American might think that word means. Um, and you kind of like, oh, what what is that? And you it might you know, get some people to sort of figure out on their own what that is. I, I really, mm. you know, maybe this is just me because I've grown up with the show, but, you know, you kind of have to be into Britain and <laughs> to to really, like, get the most out of Doctor Who and appreciate yes. it. So I think, I think I, I actually really like it when Rose goes full on, you know, uh, working yeah, class. Chav. Yeah, Chav. I, I didn't want to say it because <laughs> I don't know how offensive it is. But it's like... I do remember that's such a great line in uh, Oh we'll my there. god, we'll I'm a chav. Yes. But um <laughs> one uh, just to close the book on the dialogue, there's one line that I think really hits home for a British audience. Mm. Um actually work hits but it hits home for a global audience because how could you not know who Camilla is? Because she says Camilla at one point when they're she's talking about when the doctor's telling her who Madame de Pompadour is as the mistress, and she's like, Oh, Camilla. And yeah. It's it's funny. I mean, it's it's good. It's modern. I don't know if you you would write it today. I feel like sensibilities no. are a little different in twenty twenty two. That but. was one of the first things that I when when she said that, I I turned to my wife who was watching this. You know, because again, folks, we 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 bonded and connected and and uh, you know really started our relationship with Doctor Who. This this being one of the episodes that I showed her, the first time she came to stay at my house. Um, but uh, yeah, we we turned to each other at the Camilla line of dialogue and said, "Yeah, that dates it," because Camilla's accepted now. Right, right, right. She is the you know what whatever her title is, Duchess of whatever, uh, not Princess of Wales. Anyway, I, you know, been been out of the UK too long to remember. Oh exact yeah, titles. like like, but she's yeah, she's, she's on the inside. She's now. on the inside of the royal family. I, I get it, mm-hmm. but I also feel like that sort of needling i don't know it's it's there's a sort yeah. of needling of their aristocracy there that uh again i think is uh, anyway we could we i don't want me to fully unpack the the politics <laughs> of, of the line i think it's actually a clever line it I, is. I, and i think it's also so rose like it's it's yeah. like as a person who's gossipy and sort of you know uh, every day about the royal family i feel like that's that's exactly what she would say. And again, Billy Piper, this is one of the best things about how that character was written and Billy Piper's performance. Mm. I mean, she was so real, right? I mean, this is yeah. what my wife always says this when we go back and watch these episodes, which I had watched with her previously. She's like, oh, I just love those early Doctor Whos um, from from this era because everyone just seems so so much more real than the characters yeah. in, in the current run that, you, you know, like, uh, depending on your taste, but it is like, yeah, and I think a lot of it is Billy Piper here who's just, you know, you, you, she's super, super, like she's relatable. <laughs> like, a, yeah, the companion is always kind of there to to translate for the audience, right? And we we often get awfully close to uh, 
uh, breaking the fourth wall on that, like you know, Leela in Tongues of Wen Chiang, where she's like, "Oh, I'm I'm just supposed to nod and, yeah. and listen, and and you know, I'm just I'm just the old bouncing wall for for this information." <laughs> um, but Rose really nails the role, and you can almost see her taking a delight in nailing the role by just like, "Oh, I can I can explain this historical situation in one word." Yeah. Camilla, um, have a little and bit I love, and she, she takes a kind of gl- there's a glee in her face when she says that. So it, it was it was Doctor Who returning after 2005, you know, and, and and really setting out its stall to say we are a show for everyone, you know, even the uh, Mister Thicky Thickety Thick Face who doesn't know anything about history. Um, <laughs> you can you can still watch because we're going to translate into modern day references for you. Yeah. Yeah, no. and uh, yeah. So well, well done. Definitely well good done message to all involved, RTD and Moffat, and uh, and of course the amazing estimable Billy Piper. So is it time? Is it time to ask ourselves what if the evil plot had succeeded here? Well, let's let's take a, a brief diversion before we get this. Kind of on the way to the evil plot because the evil plot, of course, takes place in the fifty first century, right? And have you noticed, as I have been throughout our uh, adventure, that Randomizer really seems to love the 50th and 51st centuries? Well, Doctor Either Who that or loves. Doctor Who in general yeah. does those particular centuries, almost as much as the 20th and the 21st, you might say. Yeah, they've really zeroed in on it. The, um, the uh, Jack Harkness and River Song come from this era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is in this era. Um that's why it's so freaky. We came here from Silence of the Library, right? Yeah, that was the fiftieth century. Yeah, it's all. I, I I think I like that about Doctor Who that it sort of zeroes in on a couple of, well, not a couple, several uh, different eras of the future, and sort of tries to flesh them out a bit, or maybe inadvertently connects things because um, they just sort of happen to have a good shorthand. Um, mm-hmm. It sort of lays uh, the the lays the groundwork for fan theories on whether you know, say, Jack and um, uh, river or contemporaries uh, yeah. you know do they have adventures together so i think that's fine um i i i kind of just we, we should throw in canine by the way uh that's right school reunion you know the doctor's just hung out with uh canine and he he doesn't even remember that this is the era that canine comes from how quickly he forgets yeah and i feel like when the doctor when doctor who goes into the far far future whether it's they talk about millions or billions or even trillions of years Hmm. It's it stretches a certain amount of your brain's credulity to think that the universe would even resemble what we have today. You know, um, mm-hmm. when with people still being people and um, ships just still being like you know, you kind of like once you get so far out. That's why I think in series one, I think they did a little overkill with the Daleks being. I think they said it was like two hundred thousand years in the future or something. It was mm. it was some ridiculous amount, which is like okay, fair enough, but it's also like. You didn't. You didn't have to bat. You know, you were. You, you only need a, a double here, guys. You don't need to go for the swing for the uh, bleachers. Um, so. Right. Utopia is sort of the ultimate example of that, isn't it? And obviously, we'll get there. Yeah, and they kind of overshoot. So yeah, I mean, you know, fifty first century. I mean, why not? Yeah, cool. yeah. I, I kind of like it. I, I kind of want to read a. You know, I don't know if this has ever been written, but a, a guide to the fiftieth and fifty first centuries would be a great Doctor Who book. Mm. Uh, just to, just to zero in on all of the connections the doctor has to that well, timeline, sure, trying to tie them all together. Surely you have your own uh, copy of a history. A, a history. Yes, a history. The, 
the complete timeline, uh, well, the complete history of the Doctor Who universe in three volumes. Oh my god. Uh, no, no, I don't have my uh, copy okay. of this. Obviously, I need to get the... Does Does the third volume like mostly take place in the 50th yeah, well, century? Yeah, be, be sure to add that uh, to your Amazon <laughs> wish list, and perhaps a fan will get it for you. But no, they, it's actually Lance Parkin and... Oh god, I'm blanking on the other guy's name, but um he's actually been writing this book over and over and over and the first <laughs> one is sort of this very small tome it came out i think in the early 2000s or late 90s since then it's been revised three times so this is the fourth edition which goes all the way to the end of the 12th doctor's era and it, it literally does the exercise of when in the universe's history does every episode take place and how do they relate to each other and so as you might imagine the modern era like the 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 present which is from when the show first premiered, mm. you know, in the show in 63 to today, uh, whenever that is, when the book's published is the most complicated. Um, yeah. but yeah, they do, yeah. they do have like, they do make the connections between a lot of these eras in it. I'm, I'm glad it comes out in separate volumes and I'm going to suggest to the author that he might want to bring out just a separate 50th, 51st century guide. Mm. Um, cause that seems manageable. The idea of, of just reading about the entire timeline of Doctor Who kind of kind of gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. It's it's shockingly readable, and I love <laughs> all of the theories that they put in because they're it's mostly the footnotes that you wanna you wanna read because it's like why did we choose this particular date if for example mm. the date isn't given how did mm -hmm. and if it's just a general date why is it in relation before this other story or after this other story and what are some notes on the dating like for example. Why the hell is River Song even going in reverse order with the Doctor yeah. and things like you know going? There's 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 good uh, there's good thoughts about all of that. So I, I, it's definitely a rec uh, uh, would recommend for me. I I will check that out and see if I can literally check it out at my local library. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, another quick detour to uh, what if the evil plot had succeeded? Yeah. Uh, the Doctor mentions the since the evil plot is conducted by the clockwork robots or the doctor right. at one point calls them droids he does and so maybe i would like to ask our audience if they can tell us is that the first reference to droids in doctor Who? perhaps pete you can tell us that uh, because that is a, a very star wars word as it is know. a very star wars word um i think it might be is it like an yeah. on-screen droid there might have been I, i'm no wait a second even in new who there was the android do you remember that? Yes, <laughs> in Bad Wolf. So, uh, parting of the ways, Android yeah. two words. Um, and I feel that's, like that's still a clever kind of. Yeah, mm, like that. yeah. You can get technical either way. Um, mm. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta look this up. I feel like maybe they're that robot in the greatest show in the galaxy. The ticket taking robot might have been a droid. Interesting. But I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get back to you on it. But if anyone anyway, knows, what, were droids ever mentioned in the classic series? I'd like to know. Yeah, write in, write in, uh, or tweet at us, uh, TikTok at us. Yeah, do, you, do your answer in the form of TikTok dance, please. Yes. Um, show us your favorite droid. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so their evil and utterly insane, uh, though thoroughly logical from their perspective scheme, is to specifically to kidnap Manda Pobdor and insert her brain physically into the ship. Right. Uh, although, as we learn in the mini episode, they do do it anyway with the uh, with the downloaded version. So yeah. it kind of did succeed 
in a way to everyone's satisfaction. <laughs> okay, we're done. Because uh, <laughs> that's that's the stakes, right? The stakes is Madame de Pompadour's life. Well, which, think about this though. Like times rewritten. Then, if they actually do succeed, right? Like if they physically succeed points. in removing her brain. Ooh. Like then she doesn't yeah. die normally. Yes. As, in, in whatever I forget what it was, but. Uh, yeah, and so then doesn't she doesn't realign. Yeah. yeah, she doesn't realign France with Austria. The Seven Years' War never happens. The USA never exists, Boom. or at least not in its current form. Wow, clockwork droids! They just unraveled all of history. They just maybe, unraveled all of American history. Maybe that becomes kind of French a, as well. An Amy Rory paradox, where they actually stop themselves from being built because mm. all that stuff. That doesn't happen, right? It's like yeah. it's a little like City on the Edge of Forever with um, and Star Trek, where the yes. Enterprise just disappears the second they go back in time, and oh, okay, that's what happened. Uh, yeah, yeah. So then someone has uh, to go back and fix it again, or it just doesn't, or maybe look. I guess what I was getting at with the Amy Rory thing, where they throw themselves off the building and just it all mm-hmm. just sort of smooths out. Maybe that that would have happened. That it's like oh, boom. And now everything's okay. Oh, yeah. We didn't, we didn't oh, have to all, do the horse through the window thing at all. All all their blades suddenly go blunt. Yeah. You know, all of their little rotating clockwork threatening things that they're going to slice open our brain with. Oh, like time Apparently, itself stops the yeah. paradox. By the way, would, would they have their intent was to slice open her brain like right there on the floors of Versailles, which. I, I got the impression. Certainly. Yeah, they would, would have been chop a grisly scene. It would, have been, it would have been. A little cyber conversion for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think they would have actually taken just the brain or would they have just chopped off her head and then done the more, um, uh, I don't know. Did, did the deliberate work where they, the Cause there's that moment where they make her kneel on the floor and it's right before the horse comes through and like, yeah, I felt like they were going to chop off her head, but with the right. positioning of the blades anyway, it was more closer to her neck. So it's like they oh. were going to behead her, which was very French. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> uh, the and then disappear off to the future with it and then you know basically rip off everything that was in the brain hook it up to the computer and there we go and it's you know like it's so sickening to, to say it out loud and to think about like as effed up as their plan is like they're actually they, it works in the sense that they're the body parts they connect to the machinery do work in some way you know, and we see that later, even with deep breath, like these robots, for whatever reason, are good at, you know, cybernetics. Yeah. Um, Why not just use the brain of the pilot or the captain? Uh, or you know, well, they needed Madame de Pont. Yeah, so, yeah they, they just got way too literal with it. But yeah. you'd think that they maybe would have something in their programming would have said, "Well, hey, we got like seventeen brains right here. You maybe think? let's try one of them first. You know what? No one programmed these clockwork droids with Asimov's three laws of robotics. This is why. <laughs> and Boston Dynamics, if there's anyone from there listening, I, please make sure, you know, this, this is not a drill. Always make sure to program your robots with three laws of robotics. Well, that's a good point. Maybe that's why they're called droids. If, mm. not, if you're a robot, you get that program. And if you're a droid, not so much. Could be. Could be. Maybe that's the distinction. So that's so we've gone from the stakes of one person's brain to pretty much all the of entire of, <laughs> the entire of history since the French Revolution. Wow! I kind of believe you got to believe that the French Revolution would still happen. Maybe, although that was influenced by the American Revolutions of the Seven Years' War. 
If the seven oh, years were rattles, not happened, we would not have taxed your guys' tea. Because mm. we, we bankrupted ourselves with that war, so we needed the money. That's why we had the tax on the tea. That's why the Boston yeah. Tea Party. So, yeah. Doctor, you did it again. Save the universe. <laughs> nice work. By save, so yeah, so this is a very save the cheerleader, save the world kind of moment <laughs> with Madame de Pompadour. For the sure. Heroes referenced there for everyone. She's um, the fixed point in time. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it is time. It is time. It's time for time. Partner to find out where we are going next. All right. Want to explain how we do that? Yes. We have to activate the randomizer, of course, which has two key components. The codex, which provides a guide, a navigation, a map, if you will, of all of Doctor Who on as a television series. Every single adventure is cataloged in the codex. Mm-hmm. There are 299 of them. We oh. were at 173. Yeah, we just were. See. We're leaving 173 right now. And obviously, mm-hmm. number one is on an earthly child. 299 is Eva the Daleks. And there's everything in between. And yep. two- we're firing up the biscuit dispenser, mm-hmm. um, preparing for TARDIS flight. But also, we're going to the executor, which yes. is random.org. The second component of the randomizer. The second component of uh, the randomizer. Allows us to choose a random number, a true random number between one and two hundred ninety-nine. The number of stories in the codex, and uh, we uh, we know that computers don't do that very well. So we to go to random.org because they use atmospheric noise, which is very doctorish of them uh, <laughs> to generate our true random number. And you can see truly how random it is by the number of stories that bunch up together, like the fact that we did school reunion a while back, our first tenant. And now we've come back in what is it, our third or fourth tenant? fifth maybe uh, to feel right like after it. yeah <laughs> we've actually yeah. had five so far now by the way do do also uh write in because we are we are thinking of having an, a special episode where we go through the, all the stories we've been through so far and uh rank them um mm. just sort of having a, a show like that so so let us know your thoughts on your particular rankings perhaps when you leave us a review um but in the meantime uh, are you ready, Pete? Do you have I'm the ready codex with the codex. It is wide open. We have I'm all ready with random the new ones and all the time-locked ones here. Yeah. Should we challenge One. the randomizer before we get yeah. back to Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say really, really randomizer. We seriously need to get some Daleks and Cybermen out of the way. Indeed. We've uh, only had like it, one? No, we've had two Cybermen episodes because we just did Closing Time yeah. and we did Dark yeah. Water before. Right. They're, and they're not, none of them are real... You know, real showcase the monster episodes. Eh. Uh, there's always something else going on. Like Dark Water was very much Missy stealing the show. Agreed. Right. Agreed. So you don't um, necessarily it is, remember it. it. There's a lot of Cybermen in it, so I, I can't say mm. it's definitely not 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 a Cybermen episode. It's not but. not a Cyber. But okay, give give us one where Cybermen or Daleks are actually in the title, or do deep breath and let's just all get all the clockwork <laughs> droids out of the way. Yeah, it's just shocking we haven't had a Dalek episode yet. I mean, I know they're yeah. in a Day of the Doctor, but yeah, a Dalek episode. So yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Let's see some Daleks. All right. So uh, you're ready. I'm going to hit the generate button. Wanted to give me a countdown. Yeah, I do. In and a wheezing TARDIS noise. Five, in. four, three, two, one. Unstable. 142. Oh, I think we might be in old who. Oh my, Chris. 
yeah. we're at Trial of a Time Lord, <sighs> The Mysterious Planet. Oh my god. Okay, which one is that? That's the first one. That's that's actually the first part of Trial of a Time Lord. Isn't this crazy? It's doing Trial of a Time Lord in order? It might be. What if it, what if it actually <laughs> does this one and then Ultimate Foe, though? Just cut to the end. <laughs> oh no. Missing out the best one. It's, it's our first Colin Baker episode. It really is. Yeah. This is very exciting. This is going to take me right back to the me of 1986 that was so, so trying to like this story. Yeah. That's what I remember it. <laughs> I liked it really hard. I tried to get my dad to like it because he was, you know, he was a Trout Nero fan uh, and just didn't take. I get it. I get it. This will be yeah. really interesting because it's the first season, second season of Colin Baker. Yeah. And there's a lot a lot they were trying differently. It was a very interesting, we'll get to it, uh, you know, when next week, but there is a lot yeah. of interesting things to talk about around the show itself of this era. So we're going to be able to talk. To we're going to be able to talk about the time Lords. We're going to be able to talk about the Valyard, mm. uh, which is uh, wonderful. We're going to get into all that deep stuff about the doctor's future regeneration. So yeah, right. don't miss that. Yes. All right. God. Wow. I, I, I feel like it's 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 so different from what we just came from. It's really it's you know we're diving into a different pool, but it's going to be awesome. Yeah, but guys, thanks for being in this pool with us for the last little bit. Um, we are pool to open the podcast. It's a podcast. If you haven't yet subscribed, I don't know how wow you wouldn't be, but if you have it, go ahead and hit that plus button or whatever it is that gets you to subscribe to this. Um, please do. Please tell your friends about it. Please tell your Doctor Who fan friends about it. Obviously, your Doctor Who fan loving uh, or Doctor Who loving family who are clearly fans. All of them. Uh, subscribe. Leave us a review on the platform that you're listening. That would be amazing. Uh, reviews really do help us out. Uh, we're available on Apple, Spotify, Google, all the good places that you find fine podcasts. We're there. Please subscribe. Leave a review. Follow us on the socials. TikTok, of course, we're at Pull to Open and on Twitter and Instagram at Pull to Open 63. See you next time when we travel to the mysterious planet. And put ourselves on trial. All right, guys. See you then. Mm-hmm.